Hey everyone, and welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we'll be interviewing people from around the base and learning about them, as well as their keys to success. Hey everybody, on this episode, we are sitting down with Colonel Brown, the commander of the 336 Training Group. Colonel Brown, how you doing? I'm doing well, and thanks for inviting me over. Thanks for spending the time. I can imagine as a group commander that time is a very precious commodity. So I really appreciate you letting us pick your brain for a little bit. And you came highly recommended from Chief Hodges. So so thanks for thanks for coming. So uh, what, how we normally start off with is how did you get to be a group commander? I mean, was that did you always know you're coming in the military or kind of walk us through that whole path to get here, if you don't mind? Yeah. So, you know, all of us in the military have a story. Um, and I'll be honest. You know, I came from a broken home, and so although I had college aspirations, uh, you know, in 1985, it was only $6 a credit hour in the California Junior College wow. system. I had taken SATs, did very well, and I was trying to think, how am I going to pay for this? At that time, they had what was the Army College Fund and the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. And so I'd seen some commercials. I took the uh, ASVAB in high school, um, scored really well, but when I took it, as soon as I heard him say, hey, you know, if you get done early, you can go to lunch early, I was done. Um, <laughs> but my GT score back then, you know, for the Army, anything over a 110, you can have any job. And as that summer played out, I really thought, hey, how am I going to pay for school? Went down to the local recruiter. It was around the August time frame, late August. He says, hey, what do you want to do? And I told him, one, I want to get my college education, and I'd like to leave as soon as possible to get that underway. So I was like the easy fish. He oh, pulled yeah. up my records, saw my GT score, and so from probably one September till the 20th of September, in three weeks, I was enlisted in the United States Army. Wow. Didn't uh, really choose a specific MOS for any reason. I went down the list. I was a 13 Bravo, which is a field artillery cannon crewman. I knew what an 11 Bravo was, and I thought, okay, I could do that. But there was a little bit of a bonus attached to the uh, 13 Bravo, so I thought, hey, there's 6000 additional dollars that I can use for school. Off I went to uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And, you know, being a a high school athlete, to me, basic training was really like just being on a sports team. You know, it was like your coach barking at you and you just, you know, kind of learn the game. And it was, to me, it was kind of fun. Um, And so that was how it started out as an enlisted guy. And I went from uh, Fort Sill to Germany. So I'm a cold warrior. Um, You know, today's... (laughs) Airmen and soldiers, you know, we're fighting a different war. It's asymmetric war. Back then it was, you know, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And, you know, who's going to charge through the fold of gap and take over the European theater? Right. So, you know, as a field artillery cannon crewman, you know, just learning how to be a soldier, being new to anything. Uh, it was adventurous. You know, I wasn't married. Living in Germany, which was really fun. And I kind of started taking a liking to the military. It didn't seem hard. Uh, Before I knew it, I was on orders to the uh, 82nd Airborne, so another great organization and, you know, a lot of high-class teammates. I did a little bit of time in the recruiting squadron, or it would be a recruiting company in the Army. Okay. uh, Actually in my own hometown, which how that happened, no clue, but I wasn't going to tell them, hey, you know this is my hometown. (laughs) Uh, So I did very well at that, but, you know, technology back in those days wasn't there, so really I, I kept my eye on my degree. Um, and I realized that it would take me almost 20 years to finish that. I was kind of at a decision point and 
by then I was married. So my wife and I have been married since July of 1988. So she's been in the military. Wow. You know, 31 years. Well, congratulations on that. That's, yeah. that's no small feat for sure. Um, and so decided to step out and get my degree. We decided to go to Phoenix, Arizona. We're both from California, but decided it probably wouldn't be cost effective to go back to California and, you know, try and put ourselves through school. And, uh, I joined the Arizona guard. So I was still affiliated with the military. And so I did the community college for uh, you know, cost effectiveness there at Glendale Community College. And then purely by fate, a neighbor of mine from Fort Bragg was an ROTC instructor at Arizona State. So we run into each other at the gym. <laughs> he thinks I'm recruiting or, or doing something. I'm still on active duty. And I said, no, I'm in the guard. And, you know, he's like, hey, do I have a deal for you? And I'm like, Joe, I've heard that one already. <laughs> What's your deal? And he says, the uh, professor of military science at Arizona State had a two-year scholarship that he was offering to a candidate. And he goes, you know, you really should go and apply for this. And I thought, man, I'm 27 years old. Don't really feel like dealing with ROTC cadets. You know what I mean? And then I started thinking about, you know, financially, that's probably a smart move. So I threw on our, uh, my class A's in the Army. You know, you call them class yep. A's. And I reported into them. And I was a staff sergeant. You know, immediately his demeanor kind of changed because I had watched the folks going in and out to interview. And they may have been patriotic. I'm not going to question their motives, but I think a lot of it was, hey, this is some free money. And they may not have known what the expectation was. And so walking out of that room, he says, hey, I still have a couple people to interview. Another food for thought is you can also use this scholarship at Grand Canyon University, which you've probably seen commercials nowadays. When yeah. I went to Grand Canyon University... It was a campus with nothing but single-story buildings, and the student body population was 800 people. It was a, a small Christian school ran by the Arizona Southern Baptist Church and a pretty well-kept secret. The tuition there was $365 a credit hour. So hmm. I thought about it. It was a little closer to the house. So I did my undergraduate work mo mostly at Grand Canyon, and then I was in the Arizona State ROTC program and also did additional work there at ASU on the main campus. Okay. So uh, got commissioned in 1994. You know, everybody wants to be an Army aviator. So I put Army aviation first. I put the Medical Service Corps second because of the medevac mission. And then I put military intelligence third because they have a flying piece to that organization as well. And thank goodness I got Army aviation because I'm not, medical service would have been okay. I'm a, I'm a psychology major, you know, with my undergraduate studies. But the military intelligence, I'm not sure that I would have really enjoyed that. But as fate would have yeah. it, I end up at uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama in 1994. And I go through flight school. I then go to uh, Korea, where I was assigned with 2-2 Aviation. So we were an assault helicopter battalion, probably about 20 miles north of Seoul, probably about 10 miles south of the DMZ. Wow. So as a lieutenant, great, great flying assignment but I was flying the UH-1. So unlike Air Force uh, H-1s, we had one engine where, you know, our Hueys here on the right. base have two engines, but as a lieutenant, you don't realize that <laughs> it's better to have two engines than one. Um, I ended up doing 18 months. So in the Army, you know, an unaccompanied tour is still a year, just like it is in the Air Force. But I had taken on the responsibility of the Command Aviation Platoon, which flew our two one-star generals in the 2nd Infantry Division. Gotcha. And so generals like to see familiar faces. And my boss came to me and said, hey, I hate to lay this on you, but until those two generals PCS, you're going to get extended. So 
flying was good. Uh, you know, my wife had been with me as an enlisted soldier, so she understood. You know, she wasn't extremely happy about it. Right. Because uh, at that time, I had a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a six-month-old. And uh, so we, we did that. Uh, from there, the personnel center for the Army there at uh, Alexandria called me and said, Hey, you know, we've kind of ridden you hard as a lieutenant. You know, you did 18 months in Korea. Where would you like to go next? And I said, well, I'm going to PCS in December, so whatever starts the soonest, less time away from my family. Yeah. And they said, well, we have a fixed-wing transition that starts in March. We have a CH-47 Chinook that starts in February. And we have a Blackhawk transition that starts the first week of January. I always wanted to fly the Chinook. And some people aspire to fly fixed-wing, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to go with the Blackhawk. Because I can go home for Christmas, get this knocked out, and then be reunited with my family. Mm-hmm. So did that. Uh, from there, I went to the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, we also have professional development called the uh, Captain's Career Course. So if you're an Armor Captain, it's the Armor Captain's Career Course. As an okay. aviator, it's the Aviation Captain's Career Course. So the Army really does this well as a pre-command course. It's six months. So as a captain... You spend five months at Fort Rucker um, in small groups like standard PME, and then you spend an additional three weeks at that time at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which was called the Combined Arms Services Staff School. And that's where okay. you come together with the other branches and you learn how to do the staffing process. So you have you know somebody from the nurse corps, you have somebody from transportation, one aviator, so it's a cross-section of all your military uh, or your Army MOSs. Just kind of so you can learn from each other. Through Absolutely. The yeah. <laughs> uh, so from there, our branch manager shows up at the captain's career course, and he opens up the assignment book. Right? We all want to know who the branch manager is, and we want to know what's in this secret book. And I'm joking about the book, but he, uh, he says, hey, I was really looking forward to putting a name with a face because we've looked at the fact that you did 18 months in Korea, you did the Black Hawk transition, you wanted to go to Savannah, Georgia for location, but they advised me like, hey, that's probably not the best location because you've already been a platoon leader, so you're going to go up onto the battalion staff and you're brand new to this airframe, so you're not really going to fly a lot. I said, well, what about the 101st? And <laughs> as soon as I said that, he's like, hey, check your inbox because it's called an RFO, kind of, it's what we call a rip in the Air Force. Okay, yeah. And it was my assignment orders to the 101st to most people. <laughs> You know, I mean, the 101st and the 82nd at that time, you know, there, there are rapid deployment forces in the Army. Two years in the 101st, um, and then that next assignment, he said, hey, I have a VIP unit in Japan. I have a assault unit in Hawaii, which is where my wife wanted to go, being from California. And then I have an assault uh, company position up at Fort Wayne, right, Alaska. So I... I thought about it, and I thought, you know, I'll go with Hawaii because that's probably, you know, what my wife would like to do. And he said, hey, well, I'm going to warn you, two of your classmates have just gotten married. So it's called joint domicile in the Army, but they're going to get dibs on being co-located right. at the same right. installation. And I thought, well, I'm not going to gamble with that. I'll take Alaska. So I went up to Alaska. Um, actually, I went home and broke the news to my wife. And she's like, but I thought there was, like, Japan and Hawaii. And I said, oh, those were off the board, you know. Typical, hey, needs of the Army. And mm-hmm. so we reported to Fort Wainwright, Alaska on the 19th of December in 1999. It had to be a little chilly. <laughs> you're, you're two days from the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year, and you're in Fairbanks, Alaska. So, yes, Dan, 
it was minus 35, I think. Um, there was ice fog. And when I pulled into the battalion headquarters, it was 2.30 in the afternoon and already dark. Right? And so I have a then, um, I think, four-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, and just an 11-month-old. <laughs> My wife's probably thinking, what did you get us into? Um, but it was one of the fondest assignments that we still reflect back on. I really? Mean, my kids now are 27, 24, and 20, and they still have memories of Alaska. Um, you know, the winters are a little tough, but uh, the summers are just amazing. And, you know, anytime you're in a remote assignment, you know, like people say, hey, I don't want to go to, you know, Base X because, you know, it's northern tier. And you end up making these great friendships that we still have these friends to today. From there, uh, I did fairly well. I had a 160th assessment date to go to the uh, 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment that was at Fort Campbell. Okay. Um, but a general officer uh, decided that I would be a good candidate to be his aide-de-camp, so like his exec. Okay. Great career move, right? Nothing but good things can come out of working for a GO if you do a good job, except for his headquarters was at uh, Fort Richardson in Anchorage, and I was stationed in Fairbanks. And so my wife is the consummate, you know, spouse says, hey, you know, do what you got to do. We'll see you on the weekends. But I really don't want to pull the kids out of school. Mm -hmm. I don't think she understood, you know, that Richardson Highway is 360 miles. You don't just jump on that thing and drive home on the weekend, especially if you're working for a GEO. Right. A little bit of a dilemma. I thought at that point that that probably would be I'd hit the 20 year mark and probably retire. Um, and then the Air Force opportunity presented itself. So around, you know, just post 9-11, uh, our rescue force was maxed out in the Air Force, literally on a one-to-one -one dwell. So they would go in for 60 days at that time, come out for 60 days. And so we were just wearing out the aircraft, the people. And so the Air Force said, we need to stand up another Air Force squadron. As part of that, the two individuals selected to stand it up, um, the DO was a former Army aviator. Huh. And so he says, hey, we could probably accelerate this if we were to bring over a handful of Army-experienced Blackhawk pilots because we fly the H-60 Pavehawk. So same basic airframe, mm -hmm. you know, different mission set, different TTPs. Um, and so a friend of mine called me, and he's like, hey, you're not going to believe this. I got hired by the Air Force, and I'm going to Davis Mountain Air Force Base in Tucson. Um, I have a special connection to Tucson because my grandfather and, you know, relatives – you know, I've lived there since the, like the mid '60s, so I'm like, oh, congratulations! You know, being a soldier for 17 years, you do drink a decent amount of what we call the green Kool-Aid. So <laughs> you know, loyalty is a, loyalty's yeah. big. And I said, hey, best of luck, you know. And he's like, well, I actually gave the commander your phone number, so expect a call. And I'm like, I appreciate it. You know, I'll listen to him, whatever. And so his name was Lieutenant Colonel uh, Tim Healy at the time. He retired as an 06, and he goes by a call saying. Gandhi. And so he calls me up and he's like, hey, Captain Brown, this is Lieutenant Colonel Healy. I said, hey, sir, what's going on? He says, so I understand you want to come to the Air Force. You know, a little humorous. I said, well, actually, you called me. I didn't call you, but, you know, I'm willing to listen. <laughs> and so he was telling me about what he envisioned with this squadron and what the Air Force needed. And, you know, we talked about kind of like philosophy. He had shared that his brother, so he went to the Air Force Academy. His brother went to West Point and was actually the quarterback for West Point's football team. Oh. And so he says, hey, I, I totally understand the Army mentality. It's a little different from the Air Force. And I'm sure loyalty is a concern of yours, you know, in terms of if you decide to come over, 
you know, you have a two-star general that's really looking at you to be his aide. You know, it's a tough decision. He goes, but if you tell me you want to come over, I can commit and guarantee that you will have a slot. And I said, well, I'm not going to commit to you over the phone. I'd like to go talk to my wife. And so doing a little research, I realized that the rescue bases, there's only a handful CONUS and a couple OCONUS. So less moves. Mm-hmm. Um, exciting mission, pretty similar to the 160th. I mean, doing aerial refueling, you fly in a two-ship, you know, the miniguns, the 50 caliber machine guns that hang off the side of the aircraft. And so she said, hey, you know, I, I think it'd be kind of neat to live in Tucson for a while. And so I committed to it. That right there um, kind of had my Army leadership's head spinning a little bit like what just happened because I had no commitment. So I did what's called a release from active duty. AFPC brought me over into the Air Force. And from there, I mean, here I am as an 06 in the United States Air Force having the opportunity to command, you know, the Air Force Survival School, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Air Force-wise... You know, I did the standard jobs. I did a flight commander position up in the 55th, stayed there for four years. The Air Force uh, thought they needed my, my talents on Capitol Hill, so for some reason I was selected for the Capitol Hill Fellowship, and I spent a year in a uh, Texas congressman's office understanding the civil-military interaction and kind of educating them and as well as becoming educated myself. Um, Following that year, uh, I went back across the Potomac River to the Pentagon, and I was in our Special Operations Personnel Recovery Division. Um, did that for about two and a half years, and then was selected to be a the DO for the 66 Rescue Squadron, which is out of Nellis Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, things started to accelerate. Um, originally, the the game plan was that I would fleet up in the 66. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get four years, you know, get my middle child, my daughter through high school, you know, all the things we look for as parents and you know, husbands. And somebody said, well, you're going to go over to the 512th Rescue Squadron, which is our FTU there at Kirtland, and command that. So, you know, as an old soldier, salute the flag, pack up my family, we moved out <laughs> Kirby, New Mexico yeah. for two years. From there, I was supposed to go and just be a deputy group commander there at Kirtland. And, you know, I got called, hey, you need to be back at Maxwell for Air War College by, you know, July, whatever date it was. And I'm like, okay, great. Things are starting to accelerate. Uh, That was a big decision point for our family because my youngest was a junior in high school. He wants to move there junior. Yeah. Um, You know, he's ingrained in sports, you know, academics and all that. And so made the decision that I was going to go in my 30-foot travel trailer and live in the fam camp, um, which is a well-kept secret there at Maxwell. I mean, there's a, a section that are Air War College students. There's a section that are SAS students, IDE <laughs> students, you know, so it's kind of a gold mine back there at Maxwell. So did the uh, Air War College. They did send me back to Albuquerque for a one-year tour at AFOTEC, which is our uh, Air Force Operational Test and Evaluation Center. Okay. Um, but as soon as you pin on 06, I mean, we all know what the commitment is. And I was there almost one year to the day and got uh, orders for a 365 to go work at the Baghdad Embassy as part of the uh, security assistance team. Wow. So I was the uh, Air Force team chief. Um, I had five officers underneath me, and we handled the largest portfolio that the DOD had as far as our Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. I mean, we fielded their F-16 program. We fielded their own flight school during that year. 
they have another airframe, the ACRC 208, which is a Cessna caravan. Okay. So just each guy had their portfolio. And I was the advisor to the uh, Air Force Chief of Staff, so a three-star General Anwar, um, as well as the Chief of the Air Defense uh, Force, which just because it had the word air in it. I think they said, hey, well, Air Force portfolio. Um, <laughs> so I spent a year there at the, they call it the Baghdad Embassy Compound or Complex, which is really unique. I mean, it's the largest embassy in the world, and you get to uh, interact with, you know, your State Department counterparts, you know, different uh, organizations that are nonprofit like USAID. Uh, so, you know, professionally, just really a neat experience, but to be gone again for another year from your family. Yeah. You know, kind of a challenge. Uh, from there, I got a phone call uh, from the previous 58 SAL commander, and she says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about you. A little bit of your reputation is still around here, but they think you'd be a good fit for the 336 training group. I said, absolutely. If you're asking me what I want to do, I would love to come to Fairchild and command that group. Uh, primarily as a former enlisted soldier, you know, I have 20 officers in my entire organization, but I have like 560 enlisted folks. And that's here at Fairchild, wow. down at our detachment at Lackland, and then up there at the Arctic Survival School. You know, I've always had that special place in my heart, having been a lower enlisted and an NCO of giving back um, to the enlisted force. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I ended up as a group commander and part of Team Fairchild here. Wow. I don't know if I've ever interviewed somebody so far that's had that wide of scope of experience. That's awesome. So a couple things I'd like to go back to, if you don't mind. Uh, the first one, and I started doing this because I got a, a really cool story one time with it so i just started you know what maybe i should ask everybody this is evidently you were in on 9 11. so how did that change like what was what happened to you that day you know if you kind of walk us through that a little yeah. bit so i was scheduled for a flight that day up in uh, alaska and i remember having the tv on and i could see it in the reflection of the mirror as i was shaving and i thought that's a pretty interesting movie stunt you know because the volume was down i and then I could see on the, the ticker tape, it said, breaking news live. And I'm like, okay, maybe that isn't a movie stunt. And so I turned up the volume. And right as I did that, you know, shortly thereafter, that second jet went into the tower. And I was like, hey, this is for real. Mm -hmm. And I immediately called my battalion commander and woke him up. Because it was, you know, Alaska's on Alaska Standard Time. And I said, hey, boss. I'm heading in for a flight. I'm not going to do that because there's been a tragedy in New York City. Somebody has ran two jets into the World Trade Center. So we're talking Fairbanks, Alaska on September 11th, 2001. Population maybe 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, back then, across any of our installations, rarely were, was anything guarded. It was all open. If you remember, we used to have DOD stickers where they would wave yeah. you through. And if yeah. it was blue, they'd salute. And if it was red, they'd wave you through. And... Uh, it literally took me close to two and a half hours just to make it to the front gate because other people coming onto the installation just didn't know what was going on. And so out of frustration, I literally pulled my car over. And like I said, there were no gates or fences around uh, Fort Wainwright. And I got along the banks of the Chena River. And I walked along the river, popped up onto one of the roads that I knew would lead me into my company. And went in and just kind of did a alert recall. Said, hey, anybody that can get here, let's get here. 
And to answer your question, I realized right then, like something in life or in our profession of arms is never going to be the same. And that kind of factored into me going into the Air Force. Um, back then, uh, the forces that were in Alaska, they called it the Hunt and Fishing Club, but they were very professional organizations, but they didn't have a short notice rapid deployment mission like the 82nd or the 101st or 25th ID out of Hawaii. You know, they had the mission set for United States Army Alaska. Um, and with that, you know, I realized deployments, right? This is not going to be a hundred hours war. Right. And so, um, you know, I went to the Air Force knowing like, hey, I still want to be in the fight. And as a rescue helicopter pilot, it's amazing the things that yeah. we get to do. Um, you know, and as I reflect back on it, you know, there's a lot of white knuckle moments. Um, I have two gold crowns, you know, and the doc says it's because, you know, I grit my teeth and I would probably attribute that to some of, you know, our controlled crashes. We call them landings in a helicopter. <laughs> you know, when you're wow. flying along zero visibility and you have to land at an LZ and you're looking at a FLIR, you know, you really don't bring up the ground until you're about two feet from it. So that's kind of, you know, that pivotal moment where I realized, like I said earlier, you know, I'm, I consider myself, you know, from the Cold Warrior era. Right, right. Uh, where it was large uh, maneuver forces to now. I mean, we're fighting on asymmetric battlefields where you don't know which direction the enemy's coming from. We don't know exactly what they look like. Yeah. You know, it's just a, a completely different mindset for 21st century warfare that was two years in for myself and it was just just enough to get a taste of before everything happened and then everything was not that same anymore yeah. so <clears throat> the other thing i noticed when you were talking about your career was it seemed like as soon as you got comfortable with something it was finding the new challenge or change or taking a new risk or something like that Did, was that a conscious thing or was it were you kind of gravitated towards those challenges or did it just kind of life happened and oh this opportunity presents itself and let's roll that way yeah i think to answer your question you know it becomes part of our dna to move in the army as an mm -hmm. officer you rarely stay anywhere longer than three years yeah two two and a half three years at the most um, so, you know, you kind of become conditioned, as does your family, like, hey, we're going to PCS. Part of that, I mean, different opportunities, you know, uh, would trigger moves. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't volunteering for everything. It was usually somebody was telling me, hey, Captain Brown, you're going over here. You know, in the Air Force, we got a little more longevity in duty assignments. Mm -hmm. um, even though I moved positions, you know, four and a half years at DM, you know, four years in D.C. in the National Capital Region, although I had two different jobs. You know, like I said, it did accelerate uh, once you get into those lieutenant colonel DO positions and then per the needs of your community. Right. It, it's rare in the rescue community to have somebody fleet up. I mean, it's good to cross-level talent and get different perspectives. And You know, I'm not sure gotcha. how, um, you know, they manage the officer talent uh, in the 92nd, but I would assume, you know, there's pr pretty frequent moves. As my career kind of sunsets, I'm actually going to retire next July. Oh, okay. Congratulations. Um, yeah, so it's going to literally, this this couldn't work out better. My terminal leave, so I will change command in the morning on the 2nd of July. And I'm fortunate to give the guide on to a personal friend who was my DO and took the guide on as a squadron commander. So how That's many times cool. does that happen in the Air Force? 
and I will retire that afternoon at 1400 over in the 36 RQS hangar. And with my terminal leave, it literally takes me back to the day that I first enlisted. And it'll be 35 total years in uniform. Wow. You know, and I always envisioned that, like, hey, that'd be really cool. And it's actually coming to fruition. Uh, But then that's where, you know, kind of the anxiety kicks in, right? Because, (laughs) you know, you learn as a young airman or a young soldier, like, hey, I got to, PT is a condition of employment. So I got to get up however many days, you know, your service wants you to do PT. I got to pass a PT test. I got to put this uniform on. It's got to look presentable. I got to show up on time. You know, so literally, um, you know, we're just like prisoners in a sense, right? We're conditioned to our environment. Right. And I'm now going to have the opportunity, as I joke around and say, find out what I need to do when I grow up. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm taking some conscious measures because it's hard to let go. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I still, you know, you know, folks tell me this too. I, I still have some in the tank as far as leadership and aspirations, but I really don't see anything as good in my life as being a group commander. Um, and even as a group commander, you're, you know, as a squadron commander, that is just, that is the best job in the world. You have the most impact on airmen as a squadron commander. Mm-hmm. You know, you move up to group commander, and I'll be honest, I probably, and I pride myself on knowing names and knowing about people, I probably know about 20% of my organization intimately. And then as a wing commander, great position, you know, great Americans are filling those positions, but I just thought to myself, you know, the amount of time you're on the road, the different boards, the different commitments, the community speaking engagements, I mean, you're just, you get more and more removed from the airmen. I mean, I, I thought long and hard about it. You know, I confided in Colonel Salmi, talked with Scott Heathman, and uh, decided, you know, I'm not going to compete on the wing command list. Uh, you know, I've got a couple questions from GOs in my own community. And, and friends, and I thought, you know, it's just the right time, you know, using sports analogies, you know, I want to be, you know, that quarterback that wins a Super Bowl and then goes into retirement. Right. I don't want to be, you know, and he's a Hall of Fame quarterback, you know, Peyton Manning, who's, you know, goes from Indianapolis to the uh, Denver Broncos, but right. he's held together with bailing wire and his pa- his passes, although effective, look like, you know, punts. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, that's not how I want to go out. So I think it's just fitting that I'll be able to, you know, surge all the way to July and then, you know, right off into the sunset. So that's one thing I've been kind of, I'm at the 21 year mark myself. So kind of thinking about making that decision at some point in the near future. But for me, and I'm asking, I'm saying this just to kind of get your perspective on it is every time I think about, well, what am I going to do when I grow up? Honestly, the thought of hanging this up and doing something different still scares the crap out of me. Is that, are we all human that way? Or, I mean, I know, realize that you're in a completely different place in life than what I am, but I mean, we all, we all are part of this organization and moving on. That's why I'm kind of asking that part of it. So I do a, uh, a professional development, you know, with different groups and I kind of frame it in like a sports analogy, right? So your career is kind of like four quarters of a football game. And so to answer your question, bottom line up front, don't leave the military unless you have something so passionate outside of the military that you want to go do. Um, because this is really the next best thing to being on a professional sports team. Right. Right. I don't know either of you personally, but I know just based on the rank that you have on your shoulder and the positions you have, the quality of who you are as Americans. 
I, when I hang up this uniform and I go off into the civilian sector, uh, I'm going to be pretty vulnerable. I think I'm a good judge of character, but it's going to be a completely different environment. So what I tell people with this OPD is, and this isn't scientifically based, it's just me looking back on 30 plus years of being in the military, so it's kind of qualitative, is the first quarter, which I was in and, and you two were both in, is kind of, we're looking for a job or we're looking for something, you know, kind of along, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right, right. right. Um, whether it be for me, the Army College Fund, you know, I'm not going to ever question anybody's patriotism, you know, post 9-11, people joining, but that first quarter, and I'll say it's, you know, on the enlisted ranks, uh, E1 to probably E4-ish, maybe E5, and O1 through about O3 or O4, you know, and there's service commitments that keep people beyond that, but that first right. quarter is really just a job. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's where we kind of buy into our Air Force core values, right? I don't expect when I meet airmen uh, for them to completely buy into our core values. Because like I said, we're a cross-section of society. And I use myself, for example, I came from a broken home and saw a lot of things that didn't align with Air Force core values or in the Army was our leadership values. Um, and so that first quarter, you know, it's a free-for-all. I tell people, look at the benefits of, the organization you're in, I know you're not pleased with things all the time. I wasn't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the benefits for your family, uh, benefits like, you know, the tuition assistance, just things of being part of this organization. And if you decide to leave, I'm still going to shake your hand and tell you thank you very much for being a great American. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the percentage of people that serve in uniform we know is less than 2%. That second quarter, I kind of frame it as this is where it becomes more of a uh, profession, right? So as E5s, you know, because I was an E5, we're like, yeah, I'm pretty good at this, right? Yeah. Hey, you know, I have a little <laughs> more responsibility, and I'm actually impacting, you know, my little section of seven dudes. Um, you know, so that profession, you know, is kind of where that dedication comes in, and, and that takes you, I'd say, probably, you know, E5, E6, um, O3 to O4, but that's, that's really that first decision point that we all probably have thought about, like, hey, that 10 year mark. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and time just goes by so quick, you know? Yes. And so I tell folks, you know, do what's right for you and your family. Always put your family first, but really weigh the pros and the cons because sometimes there's opportunities to come back to the military, but there's often roadblocks. You know, if you depart the service, uh, when I left active duty late 1989, early 90, the Army was at 880,000 people. They wow. then set a benchmark of, to be at like 500,000. So guys that had left that wanted to come back in, they said, hey, thank you for your service, but you know, we're not taking applications. Now that all changed around 9-11. They're like, hey, right. even though you have some issues, we'll waive that and you can come on board. So you know, that's first quarter's job. Second quarter is that profession. And then where you guys are and where I'm at, you know, that's, it's a career. Mm -hmm. We're now, you know, we're job, we're dedicated, now we're committed. Because like you said, you're coming up on 21 years. You're welcome to retire. I mean, that's what the federal government says. Mm -hmm. But there's just, I mean, to be in an organization like the United States military, it, it is amazing. And then I tell them, you know, those, those of us that go past the 20-year mark, you know, then it becomes a lifestyle, right? <laughs> you talk yeah. in the same jargon, <laughs> you know, Next time you guys go to a social function, um, look at people's civilian clothes, right? They pretty much all look the same. You'll see guys, their their gig lines light up with their belt and their button-down shirt. It's pretty you know, tan 
tan slacks, blue shirt. Um, mm-hmm. But it really, I, I tell uh, Chief Summerlin, who's going to retire in March, I go, it really warps your DNA. It becomes really, you know, it's not who I am as a person, but it definitely is a lifestyle. Yeah. I know every yeah. six weeks I'm going to an ALS graduation, right? I know that twice a year I've got a SEER graduation. I mean, I, mean, I know all these things, and nothing surprises me. Yeah. To, to include the bad side of, you know, our job as leaders, you know, airmen are airmen, you know, as you yeah. know, that as supervisors, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me either. And I think my perspective going all the way back to being an E1 or E2 tends to really reinforce like, hey, we're not a one mistake Air Force. You know, there's corrective actions that we have to take to get them to buy into those core values yeah. and realize, you know, we say this for a reason. But yeah, for you personally... You know, I, it's a personal decision. Your wife should get a vote. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, if you look at what you're a part of, I think from what I've heard, you know, on folks that have already retired is, you know, there's a yearning for the camaraderie, the teamwork, you know, the quality of the people you're around. It all comes to an end. So. Yeah. Chief Reem uh, says it. He goes, we all have to hang up the Superman outfit at some point. So how do you define success? So I'll I'll tell you something that uh, just happened here recently. Uh, I have a SEER specialist who graduated. He's a little older than your average airman. Um, And I think very highly of him. You know, as a group commander, I I get to see the cross-section of my entire organization. And so, I mean, Mm -hmm. I just realize the leadership qualities he has. And he stubbed his toe in an incident here recently. And so kind of my measure of success is how do I impact people's lives, right? Not awards, not decorations, not promotions, you know, none of those things that are on a OPR makes no difference to me. But really, you know, gives me the fulfillment is this individual came up to me, just out of the blue, didn't have to, and uh, says, hey, sir, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm like, sure. And he says, I, w- I want to apologize uh, for this incident that I got myself into because, you know, I respect you as a leader, I respect this organization, and it, I, I just don't have any excuse. And I said, that's okay. I said, uh, realize, you know, you're going to get scuffed up a little bit because we have a UCMJ. And I told him, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, you carry a pack for a living, right? Because he's one of our SV-80 instructors. Gotcha. And uh, he's like, yes, sir. I said, so take that, right? Put it in your rucksack and just move out smartly, right? Just use it as a tool as you become a junior NCO and I'm sure a senior leader in our Air Force to reflect back on, like, how do I want to treat somebody when they're in this situation? And my leadership didn't hang me out to dry. Because it's pretty easy sometimes if you want to just look at the manual for court marshals and the UCMJ. You know, you can, done. Mm-hmm. Um, but we preach, you know, we're, we're not a one-mistake Air Force. And all of us have had bad days, you know? Yes. Um, <laughs> And really, that's kind of, you know, to ask, answer your question about my measure of success is really how do I impact people's lives? And, you know, as I reflect back, you know, as retirement's, you know, not too far away, I think of different situations where, you know, personal interactions with somebody still resonate with me today. And there's a ton of them. One that, you know, is especially special to me was I had an individual who was a special missions aviator, so crew chief, a flying Mm-hmm. Special missions aviator on uh, one of the helicopters that I was a commander uh, of the squadron. Red Irwin Award winner, 
So the guy's cut from a special cloth. Yeah. You know, just one of our instructors that people gravitated towards. And unbeknownst to me, he was a functioning alcoholic. Never in a million years. I mean, I, I looked at his complexion a little bit because, you know, there's kind of some telltale signs, but his performance right. never indicated that he had any issues. And I happen to be TDY. And the gentleman that's going to take the TRG, who I mentioned was my DO, calls me. He goes, hey, boss. He goes, um, we've got a little bit of an issue here. This individual missed the crew brief, but he doesn't have a student. So he was just a left scanner, per se. And so the instructor pilot, who was new and really by the books, you know, kind of chewed him out and said, hey, what makes you think you can miss the crew brief? And so this individual's excuse was, well, I was going to go out and just start the pre-flight to get ahead of time. You know, the IP of record said, no, we don't need you today. We're going to take, scratch you from the orders. You know, go let the DO know that I'm taking you off the flight. He goes, you know, they suspect that he's been drinking. I said, oh, really? Unusual. I said, well, get in his personal space. See if you smell it. So he calls me back. and goes, no. He goes, I don't smell anything. His eyes don't look watery. I said, well, just ask him if he wants to go down and do a breathalyzer with security forces. And this individual said, sure, I'll go down there. At that time, he had a brand new Mustang 5.0. Hmm. Drives down to security forces. It blows a point like one, two. He'd already been wow. at work for about three hours. Wow. And drove, because he's coherent, because he's a functioning alcoholic, to security forces, not even thinking he was going to blow positive. And so where that impacted my life is we got him through the entire ADAP process to include being uh, inpatient. And, you know, they discovered some things uh, medically that, you know, his reliance on alcohol, he was diagnosed with bipolar. So there was a lot of deniffing things. I pulled him in and I, I told him, I mean, you, you know, this is the end of your career. He's like, yes, sir. And I said, but it's not the end of who you are as a person and what we're going to do for you. And then he just kind of looked at me and, you know, we had to go through the UCMJ actions and all that. But I said, we're going to make sure you're postured for success. And so... Would follow on treatment, you know, got him stabilized, and he exited the service. He just finished his bachelor's degree. Nice. He is remarried. His life's together. And we correspond like once a month, you know, and he's like, hey, I really appreciate the fact that, you know, I really, you know, gave the unit a black eye with my actions, and you guys could have turned your backs on me, but you didn't. I care about you, right? Because that's part of our organization. We care about the people that we serve with. Um, so yeah, as I look back three plus decades, it's just the, you know, my measure for my leadership success is A, how, how I impacted other people's lives and then to watch them grow up to be leaders in the positions that they've achieved, just you know, paying, paying it forward, you know, for people that mentored me. Wow. Yeah. That's an awesome story. Thanks for sharing that, sir. Mm -hmm. So you kind of went into the next question, so we're going to skip one. So what is the greatest lesson that you've learned? The greatest lesson that I've learned, and I'll just attribute it to success, is if you work harder for the person to your left or your right, it will come back tenfold and benefit you. I think you guys will agree as lower enlisted members or junior officers, we're trying to you know, see where we fit amongst our peers. It's pretty mm -hmm. competitive. It could also, you know, it could really... I attribute it back to my time as a flying lieutenant. It was kind of cutthroat, right? Because everybody's coming out of flight school and everybody wants to, you know, show how, how good they are in the aircraft and this, that, and the other. And I've always, you know, been the 
consummate team player. And, uh, you know, I've always thought if I'm working harder for the person that's to my left or my right, when I need them to pick me up, they will. And it has been proven tenfold across my career. So I think that's probably the one thing that I would tell somebody is, you know, we're all a team. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's easy to look back from the finish line backwards and say, hey, had I known <laughs> then what I know now, you know, I, I made probably the same decisions, but I, you know, would have probably shared with people like, hey, you know, it's not really that important as lieutenants that we're all trying to be the number one dude. Let's do, just do our jobs. I mean, you guys remember back when you're, yeah. you know, airmen and, you know, who was going to be VTZ and, you know, who was going to be the next this and that. And then at some point, you're all wearing master sergeant stripes. You're both going to be wearing senior master sergeant stripes. And if you make it into that 1%, then, you know, it's kind of a cohort, kind of collegial. You know, there's no more competition, right, as chiefs, yeah. unless you aspire to be chief master sergeant of the Air Force. But, you know. <laughs> I think I'll be good. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you one more question, sir. So if we could leave the listener with kind of three takeaways, if you have three takeaways that you, you kind of get your your true north from, what can we leave them to think about for the next little while? So the first takeaway that I am not the best at practicing, and a lot of us could probably look in the mirror and say, you know, work-life balance and putting our families equal. I won't say, you know, you can't always put your family first, although we say we should because we do have requirements. Right. But, you know, people should really work on a balance. Um, my family loves me. You know, like I mm-hmm. said, I have a 27-year-old, 24-year-old, and a 20-year-old that wouldn't trade me in for a new dad. You know, provide, you know, great vacations, provide them, you know, with the ability to go to college and, and different things like that. But the times that I looked back on that I wasn't there because I felt, you know, the requirement to fulfill some duty obligation you'll never catch up so at some point you just kind of have to you know set some time aside so that's the first one that I really you know try to emphasize to people and I again I'm not saying that I'm a great representation of that (laughs) but what my family will say is my dad's honest and we understand why he did what he did Um, the second thing is just realizing what a great organization it is and you know the benefit of learning something about the people that are around you it's, it's amazing to find out, you know, as I see different packages, you know, going up like OTS packages, that this guy came into the Air Force as an E-1 with a civil engineering degree from University X. I'm like, how amazing is that? That's just the caliber of our airmen and the officers. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and then the last thing is, you know, I already hit on it. It's just working harder for the next guy um, because, you know, the adage that all boats rise um, you know, if you're not looking out for yourself, um, in terms of, you know, output, but you're really cross-leveling that with your peers, they're going to do the same thing for you. Um, and we all know there's occasionally that one or two folks that, uh, you know, are big me, little team folks, as I like to say it. Uh, the sad thing is, is they will achieve their goal probably, but when they cross the finish line, you know, you and I will be there and somebody will hand us a glass of water or an orange yeah. and, you know, give us a shoulder to lean on and they're probably gonna be looking around saying hey I won the race but you know who's here for me uh, so it's more of a, a personal thing you know there's no quantifiable 
if somebody's listened to this, writing it down, like, okay, there's a checklist. That's my checklist. Yeah, that's yeah. not what our business is about. I mean, it's just being a genuinely good person and uh, taking full advantage of the people around you. Yeah, the golden rule, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you treat people with dignity and respect, I mean, can't go wrong. Awesome. Colonel Brown, thank you for the time. You're awesome. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, man. All right, so that's it. We will see you next time. So that's it. This is uh, the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. Again, I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. If you have a show idea or anybody that you would like to hear from on this show, please contact us at refuelteamfairchild at gmail.com.